morning, Chuck Storms. Good morning, Wilson. <clears throat> morning, Carrie. Good morning. Yeah, it's looks like a sunshiny day there, Chuck. Sun coming in the window. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> we haven't had much winter yet. A little bit of snow, but no cold weather. So, what about this? What about me, Chuck? What do you think about that background? <laughs> Can you see me? <laughs> <laughs> Wilson just changed his background to some beach down there, in South Texas. Yeah, that wasn't South Texas. That was the one a little further south. I'm afraid the water was a little too clear and <laughs> pretty. <laughs> Bahamas or something. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Chuck. It's really cool. My pleasure. You have uh I'll just go in and announce to everybody what you are. You're one of the six. And uh they're like, what the hell is one of the six, right? But but uh <laughs> my dad told me he said, son, as you're progressing through your career, um your customers are usually always going to like what it is that you do, but that really doesn't mean anything. You got to pick six people in the world that actually know what they're looking at. And I don't mean that disrespectful to everybody that's not part of the six, but they do have, uh, and I don't know if there's exactly six, but I have a group of individuals that when they tell me I've done good, it means something. And when they tell me I've done that, I need to pay attention more. Welcome to the club, <laughs> Mr. Storms. You're one of them. <laughs> Oh, well, you just you just took a page out of my book, Willie. That's exactly the way it's well, been for me. I knew that the way this conversation was going to go, I better chime in early because I was going to get chipped out with this. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is the truth. You have helped me many, many, many times in many different ways over the years, and it's an honor to have you for sure. Yeah. That makes me feel good, Wilson, to hear that. Well, you were the president when I was applying to this fine organization that we belong to. And, and mm. I, mm. you know, you had them glasses and they were down around your neck and you put them at the end of your nose and you look at my stuff and it scared the hell out of me. But that's all right. <laughs> 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 Well, that's uh, that goes back to to uh, oh, I don't know how long it's been. Been over twenty years now, I think, because we were, we had founded the association, and and uh, of course I had misgivings about being a founding member because I never did have to run the gauntlet. <clears throat> I wasn't considered, you know, top of the food chain chain by any means, and and so course chuck i and i had that conversation of whether i belonged or not and <laughs> and i had the same conversation with with dale harwood as well and and uh so they didn't want me to jump ship i don't think but chuck then invited me i think that was that was kind of the impetus for me to wrangle a uh, an invite to come to millerville alberta canada and spend a few days with chuck and boy howdy did that ever rock my world so and and because what two three years later i think i got uh wanted another critique and so wound up coming up and spending another couple of three days with chuck and i'm not too sure but what i didn't get more out of it the second time 
Boy, my pump was primed by that time. So the digestion had started, and so then that created more opportunities. I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think <laughs> I think that's exactly what happened. And of course, I think the second time I I uh, I'd asked Chuck to critique in the fall of the year, and then <clears throat> next thing you knew, we were heading into winter and the holidays and stuff, and so we just wasn't going to happen to come up there again. And I think it was maybe the next April or so that I came up there and spent a few more days and, and Chuck had said, boy, you got some problems or something like that. And, <laughs> and I, I thought, Holy cow, what, how could it be that bad? And I was going to take, I was willing to take his word for it, but boy, I spent all winter chewing on that. And by springtime, I, I could hardly wait to get to Chuck's. You got to, I got to hear it, Chuck. I got (laughs) to, you're killing me. You're just killing me. Uh, (laughs) You didn't know you were so mean on Chuck. I didn't know. (laughs) No, I would have denied being that mean, but yeah. You know what? There's no sense. There's no sense in cutting around this cut to the chase, right? Let's just get to it. Yeah. Yeah yeah chuck was never mean he was he was always very thoughtful and stuff but direct and and that's what i really appreciated he didn't didn't mince words but um he chose his words very carefully actually i think and and i absorbed every syllable (laughs) that um that business of critiquing someone's work has always been a tough one for me and the only way I managed to get through it was Don King was a great example to me. Many years ago, I witnessed a young guy come to Don for a critique and uh, he had a, could have been his second saddle, you know, it was, had a lot of issues. And I remember Don <clears throat> went through that saddle and pointed out some things that this young man should work on, but he made it a point of finding something that he could compliment him on. And, uh, you know, make it so he wasn't getting beat up too badly. And uh, I always thought that was a really good approach if you could Mm -hmm. manage it. So. Certainly is. It's easy to find fault. It's not quite so easy to find something to compliment a guy on. Anybody can tear down, right? But to build up is 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 challenging. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I uh, I got a critique yesterday from somebody that I truly respect as a as an engraver, Miss Damian Conley. Uh, I w- was the teacher of the Grand Masters class when I was in Kansas, and and uh, he's one of the best of the best. And so anyhow, I studied under Winston Churchill and all that, and lives up there. So in and, and one of my missions to go up there was to become good enough friends with him that I, and I asked him, would you be willing to do something like that? You know, and man, what a great opportunity it is to have somebody of, of, of your skill set or their skill set, you know, Chuck, that can look at our work and, and break it down. And, and on, and I, the first thing I told him is don't worry about hurting my feelings. Um, that's not, that's why I'm sending it to you is for you to tell me what I've done wrong. If I've done good, well, fine, but that's not the topic of the conversation. It shouldn't be the topic of the conversation. It's, it's where can we go and how can we improve this, you know? 
good 20 minute conversation with them. It's awesome to have that. And not easy to do, mm -hmm. like you said, right? To give that, yeah. give that critique is always an uncomfortable moment for those of us that are given the critique. Yeah, it is uncomfortable for sure. I usually start out with, do you really want a critique or do you just want a pat on the back? Yeah. And if you want a pat on the back, go see your mother. <laughs> She'll always get over. <laughs> I think the I think the greatest story and it's probably Scott's uh, storytelling that that embellishes a little bit. <laughs> he said he, he Scott Hardy brought some stuff to you, and about twenty minutes later, after you sighing and taking deep breaths and moving around, you finally said, <laughs> "Boy, we've got some work to do." <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, sure I think Scott might. I think he might exaggerate that a little bit. <laughs> it's a good story when he tells it, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. Well, where should we start, Schwartzy? You, you had some questions. Well, we ought out. to get, yeah, well, we got it. We ought to get Chuck's story going back to what, 1964? Was that when you made your first saddle? Holy cow. 60. 62 62 yeah mm -hmm. you were a teenager in a shop there in calgary right 16 yep wow yeah i, I uh help in these days about how much the trade has changed since then in the time that i've been in it you know it's just uh it's not even recognizable, really. At that time, if you became a saddle maker, it meant you worked in a large shop usually with 10 or a dozen employees. And you just worked at a bench, you know, you showed up in the morning with your lunch and worked eight to five or whatever, and usually half a day Saturday as well. 44 hour week was standard. But you were just a guy at a bench, you know, you didn't sign any of your work. You didn't have anything to say about the operation of the shop. You were just an employee at a bench and uh, had been that way for many, many years. But not long after that, it started to change and those big, big shops kind of fell apart for the most most part they did. I don't know exactly why, but I think part of it was saddle makers maybe wanted to be a little more independent and maybe try out some ideas of their own rather than just make whatever the shop considered the right product. And uh, yeah, it just kind of fell apart. You know, Visalia ended, Hamleys ended, Porters fell apart. You know, all those big shops kind of disappeared and they were replaced by one-man shops like you and I have, Kerry. Mm -hmm. um, it just changed the industry completely. Was and it was it beneficial? Other, was it beneficial to the individuals like y'all? You think? Um, I think it was beneficial for the individual saddle maker, and I'm not sure that it did anything special for the trade it might have improved the quality of saddles there might have been a little more competition 
which usually leads to improvement. But yeah, whatever caused those changes, it's been enormous. Um, and when I started uh, stamping and saddle making were two separate trades. There were, was the odd guy who did both, hmm. but mostly it was two separate trades. Didn't realize that. I'll be darned. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were people who did nothing but decorate leather their whole career. They didn't make a saddle, they didn't do anything else. No different than a gun maker and an engraver, right? I mean Exactly. Exactly the same idea. Yep. Huh. Yep. It's fun to think about, Carrie. You know, it's crossed my mind a few times. If you or I would have been um, what they called a mechanic, a saddle maker at the bench in a shop and did nothing but make saddles. We didn't have to uh, operate machinery. We didn't have to stamp leather. We just mechanically fitted and built saddles. How good we would we have become at it? And the same applies to stamping. You know, I've thought about that sometimes. If all I ever did was stamp, maybe I would have uh, reached a, another level as a stamper. Uh, if I didn't have to stop and make a saddle in between, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I, uh... it'd be like, how good an engraver could you become, Wilson, if, if you didn't fabricate bits or spurs, you just engraved. There's about five different every things. day. Yeah, there's about five different disciplines in my shop that I do as a bit and spur maker, and I'm not really good at any of them, but a decent bit and spur maker, right? And it, I think about that all the time. Like if I was just blacksmithing, but man, mm -hmm. that'd be fun. Or engraving, right? Is like yeah, you, you could do so much more in that discipline if you focus directly on it. Yeah, yeah, and in a modern shop, we have to uh, we have to do all those things ourselves. And, there just isn't any other way for it to work. And it's kind of nice, too, to be able to control all those processes yourself. Kind of the, the price of freedom and independence, right, is to all the different hats that we have to wear, and including mm -hmm. the business aspect of things, mm -hmm. uh, exactly. answering the phone, of course, today with up-and-comers and stuff, social media, um, uh, bookkeeping, all of that kind of stuff. When you went to work in 1962, you didn't have to worry about anything but your job at hand. Uh, you take a break at 10 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon or not, mm -hmm. and all you had to do was focus on the task at hand with no worry of anything else. So exactly. on the one hand, it's kind of nice to have that control that you just said, but it also complicates our life immeasurably. Does it ever? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty simple. Uh, I often use the example. Um, the fellow that I wanted to be next to, I worked at that shop because he was there. His name was John Foss. Probably told you about him, Kerry. Mm -hmm. Johnny Foss, everybody called him, even though he was past 80. Um he made saddles for 66 years. He apprenticed in the 1890s in Calgary. 
And I was lucky enough to get to buy his tools when he retired. As we were going through his tools and looking them over and pricing them and kind of doing a deal, we got through everything. And I said, Johnny, your draw gauge isn't here. I don't see a draw gauge. And he said, my what? I said, draw gauge, you know, for cutting straps. Oh, he said, I never owned one. And it took me a minute, but he had always worked in a big shop where there was a cutter, who was usually the foreman, and he cut everything. He, he did all of the cutting and then delivered those projects to your bench for you to make them. But the oh. cutting part of it, someone else did it. He had never cut a strap in his entire 66 years. Or if oh, he did, yeah. he cut it with a round knife, you know. Wow. Didn't own a drug aid, hmm. never needed one. So that shows the division of labor. You know, he'd, he'd also never run a sewing machine in his entire life. Wouldn't have a clue how to even turn hmm. one on. That was somebody else's job in the shop. You know, well, that's how much it's. I can see good things about that, but I can also see just terrible things about that because you're you're actually limited to what the ability of the other person is, right? Or you're constantly yeah. correcting their mistakes. And well, yeah. if if you yeah, had a, if you had, you know, take a John Ennis for example, of that someone of that talent who's so capable of every aspect of their craft and. If you had a shop full of John Ennis's, that would be a uh, eccentric place. Would it not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure all those individuals could get along, but <laughs> I mean, that's what yeah. he would want. That's why. That's why you know the, the the our type of individual would want is somebody of equal quality across the board to do the job, and and uh, those are strong personalities to all fit within one environment. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. You know, I have to wonder if if the the vocation of craftsman, saddler, engraver, or whatever, the whole kind of cultural attitude toward that was a lot different, I think, than what it is today, too. It, it seems like, and you can probably speak to this, Chuck, didn't a lot of people um, had kind of a workmanlike attitude toward the job. It was like laying bricks or, or, uh, hammering nails as a carpenter. It, it was, it was kind of in the same category and, and that's changed a bunch too, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it was just, uh, considered a trade period. Um, mm -hmm. wasn't anything special about it. It was just another trade. Yep. And I think slowly over the years, uh, the word craft or craftsman or craftsmanship has uh, come closer to describing what we do. And so maybe instead of being like a bricklayer's job, it's um, maybe more like a furniture maker or uh silversmith uh instrument maker a luthier you know i i think it's um i think most saddle makers think of themselves more as a craftsman than a tradesman 
today. Mm -hmm. But you're right. At that time, it was like I said, you take your lunchbox and go to the shop and work eight hours. And every two weeks, you get your paycheck. And that's your job. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, And now as TCA members, we're we're referred to as artists an awful lot, right? Not just us, but people of, of that are in, in the same journey as us to create an art piece. And then you're referred to as an artist. And that's a whole nother level of, I guess it is. We That's a new thing for us craftsmen, right? Is, is, uh, yeah. I've always had a little bit of a problem with that, Wilson. I, yeah. uh, I, I like the title of craftsman and I think that's enough for me. Yeah. Um, but I'm kind of hidebound, I guess, about that whole thing. I, I don't think anybody should call themselves an artist. That's my opinion. I, I think that's what someone else can call you. Yeah. But you don't call yourself that. I totally agree. So, now, but we have to embrace that what we do and has art in it, right? And that, so that's the craftsman's yeah. responsibility to understand that. But then I'm with you. Yeah. I'm not walking around the street corner saying i'm an artist oh i'm a spur maker. Yeah. <laughs> i read an interview with james krenoff who was a quite a famous woodworker influenced a couple of generations of woodworkers in america and he was asked that question and he answered it very well i thought he said um he doesn't think woodworkers are artists <clears throat> but can be artistic mm. so that probably comes the closest to how i feel about it mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you do something well enough it can be considered artistic work yeah but i still don't like being called an artist <laughs> well those guys are weird anyhow i grew up with one you know they're weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> you don't want to be associated with them oh no <laughs> so i get i got a question for you, Chuck. So, would would say someone like uh, Eddie Hardenbrook or Alfred Soria would they have? Would anyone have referred to them as artists? I mean, we look at their work and as holy cow, how are they anything but? Uh, Alfred Soria, since you brought him up, was. Um, I interviewed Griffin. I interviewed uh, a Leonard who worked at Visalia for years. Um, he would like to have, he wanted us to think he was a saddle maker, but actually he was a clerk in the store. Hmm. Um, but he was good friends with Alfred Soria. And he told us a little story. He said Soria was. Um, I don't know what word he used, maybe effeminate. Um, he was a married man with children, but he was uh, artsy to the point of appearing somewhat effeminate. Mm -hmm. And uh, Leonard said he got a part in Stanford with Alfred one time. And uh, one of the passengers, a guy sitting there, made some. Uh, remark about Soria, you know, that like he was lighting the loafers or whatever kind of a remark. And uh, Leonard said he 
defended him and said, um, be careful, you're talking about one of the finest artists in San Francisco. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that was a general feeling that a stamper, somebody like that would be thought of as an artist, but um, also for some time, quite a while, when they were on Market Street, Visalia had Soria stamping on the other side of a window so passers-by could stop and, and watch him carve leather. Uh, couldn't talk to him, you know, but they could watch him and not interrupt him. He could work away. And uh, that was kind of a, an attraction, you know, kind of drew people to the store. So I don't know if I can answer it any better than that. But uh, Leonard Sears sure thought he was an artist and was going to announce it publicly, you know. So mm -hmm. I never well, Jack, heard a metal maker described as an artist, though. Your your audio is kind of cutting in and out a little bit. I'm. Can you? Did you notice that, Wilson? <laughs> Yeah, it's a little. I'm, I'm catch. I'm picking up what he's got going, but I got it. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I just wondered if we could exit out of the video part of it, or if, or if no. that would help us or not. But we can try that. You want to try? You want to try stopping the video and just see that deal down there, Chuck? Just say stop video, and your name will mm -hmm. come up. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that might might open some bandwidth up. Okay. So, anyway, yeah, I just we don't want to miss anything you're saying here. <laughs> so, no, I that artist craftsman thing has always been a been a debate. Um, I'll answer to either one, and and maybe sometimes I'll call myself. I don't know that I make it a big deal that I'm an artist, but so many other people are that. Yeah. I guess you get used to it after a while. Although I think I think we are in a transition, are we not? In in the in this regard, and it, and it's a slow moving train. Um, where clearly back years and years and years ago, a hundred years ago, I mean Alfred Soria was with Visalia in the teens, what into the twenties, nineteen twenties, I think, and and uh, well those those saddles were highly decorated. How, when you decorate something, you crossed into art. I mean, there's no way around that. Of mm -hmm. course, that carried on through all the way to our day and, and the advent of the one-man shop, as you described in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, was kind of probably the beginning of the one-man shop. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it just seems like we're, as a culture, the cowboy culture is just getting our head around some of that stuff. I agree. Yeah. And it, I think the first time I remember someone calling me an artist to my face was Bill Owen of all people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it kind of shocked me a little bit at the time. And, uh, in our conversations uh, in those early times when I got to know him, 
he he talked to me as if I was a fellow artist. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't uh, he didn't make any distinction. And I think it's really just us craftsmen who are sensitive about that and distinction. I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. others don't, and that's why we end up being called craftsmen, even if we don't call ourselves craftsmen, or I mean artists. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, even if we call ourselves craftsmen, I, I sure ducked my head in the beginning um, as I was leaving Greg and on my own. People said, "Oh, they're an artist. That's art," you know. And and in a way, I, so there was a a bit of a negative connotation to being artsy as a bit and sperm maker for, in my world. If you if it was jewelry, then they couldn't use it, you know. And that, and that kind of seemed like a slap in my face a little bit that they wouldn't use it. And, but as things have moved along and gone, well, I understand why some of my work isn't used. It's 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 uh, it's elegant and uh, you know and and so it's it's put in a different light. But it's all made to use, and it all could be used. You just don't go mudding in your Porsche. Is kind of the way I, I think about it. And yeah. mm-hmm. So I I mm-hmm. don't duck my head when somebody calls me an artist anymore. I say thank you, you know. But but uh. Yeah, it, it was hard for me to understand in the beginning because I didn't, I just looked at my dad as a painter, as an artist, that was artist, right? And of course, he set me straight in the word go when I said, oh, no, Pop, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about art and design. I just want to be a bit and sperm maker. And of course, he said, well, what the hell do you think that is? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think I feel pretty much the same way you do about it, Wilson, and um, I think I just wish that craftsmen, the word craftsman, um, had a, was a little stronger word. You know what I mean? I, I don't mm-hmm. think people realize that craftsman can be a title just like artist can. Oh, exactly. uh, then I'd be really happier with the, with the title of craftsman. But it's kind of lost its meaning. And so is artist to some extent. But mm-hmm. we just we use those words too freely and then they lose their power. I agree. I agree hundred percent. This, this kind of segues into another question that we were talking about a little bit earlier. And that is, uh, you know, with, with, uh, regard to the transition with big shops, you rode for the brand basically, uh, from a functional standpoint, the shop uh, ostensibly had had all of that figured out, the function and, and that sort of thing, artistry as well, of course. But now in the era of the one-man shop, we're, we're kind of left to figure a lot of stuff out by ourselves. And that kind of leads to the question I have, Do you? how important is it to have say the word cowboy on our resume you know having been horseback and we know the functional aspect of things of course this would uh also be a part of discussion with bits and spurs is the functional mm-hmm. aspect so do you, do you think it's important nowadays to have cowboy in your resume chuck you're sure you want to get into this carrie <laughs> <laughs> absolutely (laughs) Absolutely. well the first thing it makes me think about is the really fine saddle makers i've known 
who absolutely didn't have cowboy in their resume. They'd never, some of them never even sat on a horse once in their entire life. Johnny Foss would be one of them, the man that mentored me. Uh, Al Nolte, who was the star saddle maker at Visalia for years. He apprenticed at Maine and Winchester and went on to be a great saddle maker. I've talked to guys, interviewed guys who worked with him, like Dean Cisco, for example, uh, worked with him at Elson Nolte. And uh, he and others have said he was, Nolte was the best saddle maker they ever worked with. And he never, ever sat on a horse in his life. Um, I could I could go on farther. I mean, Ray Holes wasn't a cowboy, and he was my hero when I was a teenager. Looked up to Ray and his work for years. Um, I think the first time it really registered with me about this cowboy experience thing was during the early uh, trapping shows in Flagstaff. You remember those, Carrie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had a folklorist on their staff at the Coconino Center who sent out a, an application, I guess you'd call it a form to fill out if you wanted to be in their show. And, it, and part of that application was your cowboy experience. Mm. And when they sent it to people like Al Pacetti and Al Tejan, who had been in their first show, of course, it got crumpled up and thrown in the garbage can, and they never went to the trapping show again. Um, I think for myself, uh, a saddle maker can learn all of the things that he would learn by working as a cowboy. He can learn those things from his customers. Uh, if he's got the right customers and he's paying attention he can learn the things he needs to know about being horseback uh, that way and i think if you're gonna become the best saddle maker you can in your lifetime you need to spend all of that lifetime making saddles and studying saddles that's how I feel about it. We can get into it deeper if you want, but um, I, got, I have an observation. <clears throat> so hey. I, I often feel that sometimes, not always, but a, a lot of times you will find a bitten spur maker that is no longer cowboy and no longer training horses, but wanted some connection back to what they love. Now, for whatever reason, they're not doing it, whether it was injuries or economics or family or whatever the reason, they're now bitten sperm makers and they don't live the wild, wild west. So this is their connection back to um, the wild, wild west. Do you, and, and I, I observe this sometimes in, in, in my discipline that they may or may not believe they they kind of believe that everybody's going to ride a horse exactly the way they did and i don't think that's mm -hmm. a good thing i'm not riding my customer's horse and i have to listen to my customer in order to recreate something that communicates the same way they do the, the way they want not the way i do and so um i think it's a benefit 
that I have the experience of being on a horse and riding and roping and doing all the things that I've done. But um, I also think it's extremely important. I don't let my experiences interfere with my ability to build somebody else's form of communication between them and their horse. I have to listen mm -hmm. to them in order to do it. So good and bad. The first part, first part of what you said there, Wilson, reminds me of uh, my best customer for years was a horse trainer who had cowboyed in his youth uh, all the way from Montana to Mexico on big outfits. He was really a hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> during all that time, he discovered that he, he kind of was better than most at training horses. Mm -hmm. So when he started to age a bit, he uh, got away from cowboying on ranches and hung out his shingle as a horse trainer. And that's when I got to know him. Mm -hmm. He was a really good customer. He would order three saddles at a time, in fact. And wow. uh, he influenced a lot of people because he was such a good trainer. They wanted to ride the same gear he mm -hmm. did and that sort of thing. And he said to me one time, I was probably only 20 years old when he said this to me, but he said he liked, uh, he liked the fact that I was a career saddle maker. I wasn't a cowboy who couldn't cowboy anymore and took up saddle making or couldn't make it as a cowboy and took up saddle making. He liked the fact that I was a saddle maker period. And that kind of stuck with me, you know, and I, and I think it is important. I mean, it's about a 10 year apprenticeship, I think, to become a journeyman saddle maker. And it's probably a 10 year apprenticeship to become a decent hand as well. And I think if you want to do both, uh, you're 20 years in by the time you are ready to get serious and do business. I, I, I just don't see the benefit of spending that, that period uh, being a cowboy. I don't see the benefit to your trade. I just don't see it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm inclined to agree. I, I think it's, if you're going to be a, a career saddle maker or bit and spur maker and be out there at 20 years old, I think it's extremely important that you are, um, that, that you have around you individuals that definitely know what it is that they're doing. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, I think it was you and, John Ennis told me 10 years of, I mean, 10 minutes of bad advice can cost you 10 years of your career. So you, you know, you can get some bad advice, but, but uh, you're never going to get the time back that it takes to master the skill um, at what you choose. And so if you, if your intentions are to be a saddle maker or a bit and spur maker or whatever, uh, might as well get started now and then go learn what you need from, from the people that are in the other side. Well, the cowboys or the horse yeah. trainers. Yeah. I don't remember who it was that I was talking to recently about this very subject, but um, I made the case that I've made before. Uh, maybe you and I have talked about this, Chuck. I'm pretty much convinced that I could take a young person who had no ranching background, no cowboy background, and make them as good as if they had the you know, the, 
mechanics. drive the uh, all of that kind of stuff to to actually get it done uh if you could check that box i'm pretty sure i could make him a pretty popping good saddle maker and had <clears throat> never been on a horse and and uh but then would they be able to make a living at it and then it and then i've got a theory that i need to throw out there for you guys to chew on would they be perceived as somebody who has uh, a cultural commitment, a buy-in to the cowboy culture? And that's where where things get a little bit slippery. I think people are looking for a cowboy hat because that, that says they're authentic. Mm -hmm. That's what we hear a lot. There's somebody who's bought into the culture, but it doesn't say anything about their abilities as a bit spur maker or a cowboy. I remember Chuck, you you'll remember that time we built that saddle up there in Hamley's there a few years back and and Parley Pierce, who owned Hamley's <clears> at the time, he he took us upstairs. I think there was a little hallway with some rooms up there near the store and the shop and and there was pictures of of the the crew, the Hamley crew. And I think I remember one clearly was I think nineteen forty three. And there was quite a crew. There was quite a few people. Of course, that was before things started to decline uh, for Hamleys. But there was not a cowboy hat in the bunch. I promise you that. <clears throat> no, no. And, you know, that's changed so much. That's kind of a different topic. But I have lots of <clears throat> photos, old shop photos of uh, crews like at Visalia and at the saddle shops in Calgary when they were going strong and you're right, there wasn't a cowboy hat to be seen. And those guys for the most part wore a shirt and tie and an apron mm -hmm. at their bench. Um, I think that kind of elevated them above some of the other tradesmen going back to that, you know, you didn't see a bricklayer wearing a shirt and tie to work, but a saddle maker could. Um, Users. Yeah, if they if they any of them did have a hat on, if they took the photo shop photo outdoors, there might be somebody with a hat, but it'd probably be a fedora, you know, wouldn't be mm -hmm. a cowboy. Hat. Mm -hmm. And they weren't wearing boots; they were wearing, if uh, you know, nice leather oxfords or something like that. Is what they wore to work. So, all of that has changed much. It, it's really hard to compare any of that to the present day. So where did the, I mean, the the function of a of a, a saddle or a bit and spur um, was used was, I mean, a lot more people in the early 1900s before the car became so um, prevalent is mm -hmm. everybody had a horse, right? Everybody rode a wagon mm -hmm. or, or some sort like that. But where did the function come from? Where did that research come from? Or how, how was that obtained in those big shops back in the day? If they were in the big city, where did the functionability come from? Where did they get that? Yeah, I think Johnny Foss, the, the guy that I worked with, is a perfect example of that. Like I said, he'd never, never, ever sat on a horse in his life. He lived in the city. He uh, rode the bus to work with his lunchbox and put in his day's work, that kind of a guy. He made as good a seat in a saddle as anybody that I've ever worked with. And it was learned in the shop that it was part of the apprenticeship. Uh, they knew 
the shape that a seat had to have. And, and uh, I, I often preach that there's only three important things about a saddle, and that's the tree, the seat, and the rigging. And those things, I mean, the trees were factory-made, but they were uh, of a standard that everybody knew that they were strong enough and they'd fit a horse. You know, it was just how it was. You didn't need to make a fuss over it. And then the the seat, the, the building of the ground seat was taught to the apprentice when he reached that point. Um, he learned how much rise, how rounded, how flat and the area in front of the kennel, all those things. And there was a, a system. Uh, this is how you achieve that. These three pieces of leather uh, achieve that shape. Um, it, it, was, it was kind of, uh, what am I trying to say, more standardized. Mm -hmm. So throughout the shop, if you, if you bought a Hamley saddle, for example, there might have been eight saddle makers in the shop. It didn't really matter which one of them made it. It was going to have the same seat in it. And the rigging would be set the same, no matter who made it. Did that the shop vary? had this? Would a seat vary from between Hamleys and another big shop, Visalia, so, so to speak? Would, they, would there were some variations there? Yeah. Yeah, that was the shop controlled that. The shop decided this is what our seat is going to look like. This is what our rigging is going to be how it's going to be made. And that's our standard in this shop. And if you work there, that's what you do. Yeah. If you move to a different shop, you might have to learn their system. Sure. Yeah. Was, it, the apprenticeship things come up several different times and I've thought about whether they're mentioned or not, but I, it's going to sound, almost sound like an old man here, but I am, um, I, I think we do our young craftsmen a bit of a disservice by not having more apprenticeship opportunities or 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 like a, just a jump off out there in the wild wild world of sports without having to go through an apprenticeship program it creates a lot of failure for a lot of them i think there's so many things that could be learned with without having to learn it all on your own you know like having eli in the shop here um He's getting exposed to a lot of things and, and it does, it's not re ruining his career by making those mistakes. You know, we're, we're in here together and he can experience some things and I can warn some warn you know, throw some warning signs up there. Uh, I don't, that, were there more apprenticeships back in the day, Chuck, or is it? Yeah, absolutely. If it goes back to the big shop, little shop thing, if, yeah. if you have a shop of a dozen people, You've got saddle makers, stampers, a machine guy, a cutter. Um, there's some division of labor there, but there's room. And, and the shop would make a variety of goods. They'd make every piece of riding equipment you can think of. You know, reins, head stalls, leather halters, shaps, everything you can think of. So you could you could hire an apprentice for let's say half the wages you'd pay a journeyman, you could hire an apprentice and you could have him make, in my case, first thing I did was make a gross of latigos. 
So that teaches me how to use a round knife because I have to point one end and taper the other end. It teaches me how to use a maul and a punch. It teaches me how to use edgers. So <clears throat> little by little, the apprentice would be given a little more complicated jobs that require different tools to make. So over the course of two or three years, you would become very handy with all the tools and you'd learn all the shop procedures, you know, how to use certain machines in the shop. All of that knowledge accumulated to the point where they could then start you on making some saddles. And the first job as a saddle maker might be making little kids saddles. They're simpler, they're cheap. You know, there's not a lot of labor in them. The, uh, so it was a progression. And the whole thing made sense because that apprentice was making money for the job right. by making a gross of latigos and a gross pair of reins and a gross of spur leathers and whatever it is that made the shop money and paid his wages. So then if you try and do that in a one-man shop, That's the proprietor tough. of the shop, the saddle maker, the carry, let's say, or me, we're spending our time, our valuable time, teaching this young apprentice, which means we're not producing at our bench. We're also paying him wages, and he's producing very little, and the whole thing fails. Yep. So, good example, the last apprentice I had was Jeremiah. He was with me for six or seven years. And when I calculated things at the end of it, when he left, balancing what I'd paid him, what he'd produced, probably didn't calculate the, my lost time accurately. I figured it had cost me $60,000 to train him, to have him in my shop, <laughs> out of my pocket. So, of course, I have never done that again. But it just tells you that the apprentice system doesn't work unless you have a good sized shop that's making a whole range of different riding equipment. You, you just can't do it in a little custom saddle shop. Doesn't make any sense financially at all. Well, Which is that. why now if someone wants to learn the trade, they pretty much have to go to an established saddle maker and pay him not the other way around, but pay that saddle maker to give him some lessons to show him how it's done. You know, it's, it is too bad because all that shop procedure stuff is all just gone. Yeah. You know, it's another example of it, I guess, is Mark Drain, when he started out, worked in a, a silver shop in Reno. Mm -hmm. Silver State as an engraver. So he sat at a bench all day, every day for a couple of years. All he did was engrave. He didn't fabricate anything. He didn't polish anything. He engraved, period. Um, which explains why he's so damn good with a graver. It's like an extension of his finger, you know? And, uh, you, you can't become that good without that kind of repetition. And you don't get that kind of repetition by paying somebody a hundred bucks an hour to be in their shop, you know, 
apprenticeship was the only way that could happen and it's just not happening anymore we can't you know the, the I, you know greg giving me a coffee can full of rowels to file um mm -hmm. did did wonders for my ability to file around now that was the most boring job i'd ever done you know it took the first one was really cool but then five days later you're halfway through the bottom of the bucket you know like, yeah <laughs> yeah but it did it did yeah. wonders you know the way the way yeah. i've handled um eli in the shop is because i people ask me well, what's he doing for you well he's not doing anything for me you know he doesn't work on any of my work none of my pieces but but uh so we've kind of evolved and changed the 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 format a little bit but he's running his own business out of my shop he's making his own things his own name is going on them and and i'm not paying him to make his own things but he is taking care of life um situations for me that that take me away from my bench that from family to business to errands in town he takes care of those things for me um, for the opportunity to make things out of my shop and i certainly pay him to to do those things for me um, when he's working for me, but that's about mm, 10 hours a week at the most that he actually does mm -hmm. things for me. But in return, think about getting 10 extra billable hours a week in your shop on your own time. You know, that that's, that's huge for me. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that takes me from 30 to 40 hours a week. Well, that's 25% increase in income right there. So, yeah. so it, it's huge for me. And then, um, I'm not so connected to what Eli produces himself. His his own name is going on it, but I'm here mm -hmm. to to guide and help and uh, and and you know just just ride ride the ride the story with him, ride the journey with him, mm -hmm. and and it's mm -hmm. and when he wants help, I'm here to help. And when he says, "Old man, get out of the way," well, I get out of the way, let him go. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been good. That sounds <clears throat> that sounds like a a workable situation um there aren't very many ways to make that happen where just being in the shop um for a young guy to be able to be in carrie's shop or my shop mm -hmm. and just not be in the way you know maybe have a, a bench over in the corner where they can do something mm -hmm. um the the amount that they would learn just being in the shop is quite valuable, like like what's happening with you. So yeah. if you can get that worked out so that nobody has to starve to death over it, right. then good. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, worked it's out for both of us. Mm -hmm. Very good workable, workable situation there, my friend. And Eli's in a pretty sweet spot there to be able to, I see his work online there. He's, he's going to be a gamer here. Uh, and, uh, all he does but all, is... all this stuff really, uh, kind of accentuates the fact that what a challenge nowadays mm -hmm. we're turning younger people loose in the real world. And they got to build out a business at a whole cloth and not only be able to produce all this you know, stuff at a high level, hopefully, and get paid for it, have the clientele that's uh, willing to uh, pay them a living wage and and check all the boxes with regard to business and marketing. I mean, yeah, <clears throat> to build that all out out of whole cloth and and years ago, of course, like we've been saying, 
Hamleys, Visalia, Ray Holtz, they handled all that. You stepped into a system. It was it was very systematic. Everything that you did was was kind of directed and stuff. And I and I guess the point I'm making is that folks, it's really really important to learn from as many mentors out there as 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 you can because you can't holler across the shop and say what what do I do here. Uh, you're on your own uh, for the most part, unless you got an Eli McDonald situation going on. <laughs> so, and, and frankly, that's one of the great things nowadays with uh, TCA. Of course, there's other opportunities out there to, to mentor people who are skookum enough to want to get better and have the passion and all that stuff. You know, and, and the business side of it, we, we've not even touched on the business. Well, you, you've mentioned it, you know, the, the marketing and all that, the Hamleys took care of that. The craftsman at the bench, kept his head down and, and produced but the business side mm -hmm. of it was a whole nother room a whole nother skill set you know and, and uh, having having mike as an advisor for me now is you know it's it's huge it's crazy i should have done it 25 years ago but um you know because i made some very uneducated comments on this podcast earlier it's like look dude we got to fix you you are a problem this <laughs> you know <laughs> and and it's um it's awesome, but it, it, it goes back to us wearing all those different hats. And if it's going to be successful, you've got to surround yourself with people that know and learn from them. And, and you're going to, it, it creates some pretty expensive pieces or a lot of hours in the shop. That 40 hour week is not, you know, they rode their bus and took their, took their lunchbox and they produced 40 hours a week. Well, if you're going to be the one man show, it's don't, don't kid yourself. It's not 40 hours. I promise. No. What, what were you saying, Chuck? Me and you had a conversation last week or two weeks ago and you were saying mm -hmm. in order to get 40 billable yeah. hours, it was 80, 80. Yeah. 80 for me. Uh, I think some others maybe could do better. Uh, if you have somebody answering the phone, uh, dealing with all of that and you don't do it yourself, Maybe you can fix some of that. Um, you know, Dale always had Karen dealing with the customers, for example. I didn't do that. I dealt with the customers myself. So that cost me some time. But yeah, I for me, it was typically 80 hours a week uh, in order to get 40 hours work done. Yeah. I'm hovering right around that. It's just. That's where it's at for me, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's so many things that have to be done that people don't really think about, but they're all interruptions and they all steal the, the time of that eight-hour day. And so that, you just got to work extra hours. That's 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 where I'm hovering at with Eli taking care of all, you know, 10 hours a week of the other <laughs> stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'd be 90. So what you're saying is I'm an inefficient. Good gosh. <laughs> <laughs> True that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. But, you know, I think Carrie mentioned earlier that's part of the price of independence and controlling your own business, your own fate, your own life. You know, that's that's the cost of it mm -hmm. you put in the hours 
I, I know one thing. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful thing to to have the freedom to to have a family and raise a family and be with the family. Um, you know, this independent lifestyle. Yeah, there's a lot of hours, but and I spend it in hours that they're I spend them in the shop a lot of extra hours when they're in bed. And it's not when they go to bed, it's before they wake up. It's my choice to to do it before they wake up. But but uh mm -hmm. man, it's it is a beautiful thing to be able to have the independence and the freedom to live life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Even just to run your own business, you know, where yeah. you get to make the decisions about the product, about yeah. how it's marketed, who it's made for, who your customers are, you know, all of that. You know, it's all benefit. That's on the plus side. Like if somebody's difficult to get along with and you don't want them as a customer, you can just send them to somebody else. You can just say no. no so you're no surrounded shoot. by, you end up surrounded by good customers that you like dealing with and that appreciate your work and appreciate you. And uh, yeah, make no, no shop. No shirt, no shoes, no service. Right. <laughs> you know, the, one of the, as I, the older I get, the more I study all this kind of stuff, think about it and whatnot. The, I, I think there's just this huge cultural divide between what the three of us have built out in our businesses and stuff. Because when you step in your shop, I think I can speak for you two guys uh, when I say this, you step in there and you're in a, you're in a, dis, a problem solving discovery mode pretty much all the time. Mm -hmm. And for us that for a lot of people that may sound onerous, that may sound like prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's too much pressure, but for us, it's addictive. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, so you show up and, and, Maybe you're an artist under glass like Alfred Soria was down on Market Street and stuff like that. But was he trying to discover something new every day? Eh, probably not very much. Yeah, no. And uh, you just show up with your lunch bucket and walk in and take your breaks and go home. Uh, how much discovery is it? Isn't that the separation? Right. You, you're in a, you're, you, to me, I step in here. I holy cow! I figured something out. I discovered something. Isn't that a huge? It it is for me. That coffee can full of rouse that Greg had me filing on. I'm out. There's no discovery in that. We did it two rouse in, and now we got three hundred left to do. No, no, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't like that. It's not fun. Yeah. A lot, you know what? A lot more money in it though, because you know what the heck you're. Oh doing. yeah right there's there's yeah. no there's no um no trails to blaze so you know exactly how long it's going to take you to do something and how to price it well not when you've never i'm about to build some conchos and i'm like oh my gosh i know what i have no idea where i'm headed here where do we go how many conchos have i built in the last 25 years you'd think i'd know nope <laughs> with these because they're different they're new <laughs> Well, the other side of, of making saddles as an employee, um, you got uh, kind of decent but mediocre wages. The The standard was there. It was set. Um, you got so much an hour. 
if you were a journeyman and that's all you're ever going to make. Yeah, yeah. You, you aren't in control of that at all. The shop yeah. is in control of it. And as an independent saddle maker, I can, I can do lots of things. I can charge more. I can work more hours. I can do all kinds of things to change my standard of living. I'm not stuck with a saddle maker gets 250 an hour and that's the way it is, you know? So that, that just, and it, it has nothing to do with the lack of money. It's the lack of excitement of being stuck and labeled in one certain spot. That just does not mm -hmm. sound fun to me. I don't like that. <laughs> no. Making the same thing over and over, even if it's for millions of dollars. I mean, take Kerry Kelly and his productions cast spurs, man. Not for me, even though it's worth way more money than me. <laughs> right? No, not interested. Not yeah. Interested. There's, a, there's a great story about that that Dan Murray told me about his brother, Dave. I might have shared it with you before. I don't know, but years ago, uh, Dave <clears throat> used to just make projects, whatever whatever he felt like making and then offer it for sale. So he made a, a Concord stagecoach scale model out of silver, might've had some gold on it, had uh, leather springs and, you know, all made to scale, decent size, quite a project. And I think it was $25,000 or some such number. <clears throat> that the price came to and so he just put the word out amongst his collectors that he had this thing for sale and guy showed up at his door in a three-piece suit carrying a briefcase um, i understand you have a stagecoach for sale and dave said yeah come on in it's right here so we sat him down on the couch with this stagecoach on the coffee table and he looked it over and <clears throat> He said, uh, I work for the Wells Fargo Bank, and I was sent here by my boss to look this over, and I'm authorized to order one of these for every branch of the Wells Fargo Bank in America. <laughs> and if you think about that, that's probably 2 or $3 million worth of business right there. Yeah. <clears throat> and Dave said, get out of my house <laughs> you're a crazy person go away <laughs> and took him to the door kicked him out physically kicked him out wow yeah Can the you point imagine? being do i want to make this damn stagecoach over and over and over again for the rest of my life of course not and it doesn't matter about the money that's yeah that's beside the point so yeah yeah don't need to make that 250 more times. No. No, no. <laughs> well, Schwartz, we've a, this is a typical conversation with my good friend Chuck Storms. We're an hour and 15 minutes into this deal. And Are I we? Go, and I could go another hour and 15 minutes and still feel we're like just, we didn't talk about anything. We're just getting started. We're going to have to have Chuck back. I can tell that already. It only scratched the surface of the stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> well there go clock in huh
Yeah, here we we'll are. Get something done. Got to get yeah. something done. You're bumping up against lunchtime there, and down in old Texas, huh? Hungry uh, hurts a little bit. Yeah. Ready. It's Friday too, you know. Well, yeah, it's Friday. I mean, everybody hearing this on Monday, but it's Friday here in real time, actual time mm. when we're doing this. It's it's close to brown water time, you know. It starts. Oh man! It starts showing up <laughs> late, later afternoon. It's just medicine for what happened in the eighty hours it took to get here, right? It's just numbing fluid. <laughs> We yeah. have a we have a Christmas party to go to this evening, so that's exciting. It'll be yeah, fun. good. Yeah, but thank you, well, Chuck. Chuck. It's been a delight to have you on the on the program, and I'm sure all this stuff is. Uh, and we we welcome comments, questions, debate, controversy. <laughs> We're not afraid of that. Mm -mm. Uh, we could dig even deeper into this thing. I kind of had to hold hold myself in check a little bit here so maybe next time oh no <laughs> no that'll be fun <laughs> well thank you chuck you're you're you've been a great influence in my life so thank you so much well thanks for the kind words and it was fun to visit with you guys so we'll do it again sometime all right perfect oh, sounds man. good Adios. Take care. Yeah. Yeah.